Friends, as we hear the, you know, kids rustling, making noises, um, it just makes me think, you know, one day those, uh, I think I've said it before, but one day those, those noises will uh, turn into cries of amen and hallelujah. Um, so it's with that kind of joy as we recognize um, the children of the church and his covenant promises that we pray for them and we pray for ourselves before we're, they're dismissed. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness uh, given to us. And it's given in a promise, a covenant. And from generation to generation, um, that gospel truth, the good news of what you have done to save us is passed on from generation. Uh, and Lord, we pray therefore for the children of the church. We pray that they would be equipped and they would learn uh, who your son is and what he has come to do for them. That they would learn of his great love and the mercy and the grace that is found in him. But Father, in order for the gospel to go from generation to generation, it must also be steadfast in our own hearts. So we pray for ourselves now as we turn to your word that you would bless us and speak to us and that you would encourage us, Lord, but you would also reveal and expose us if need be. In all of these ways, Lord, I pray that we would be a word-centered church uh, because the word is Christ Jesus himself. So help us focus our thoughts and our minds on him. Bring our affections before him as we celebrate by hearing what you have to speak to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed, children. Uh, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Today we're reading uh, various verses in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and chapter 3. Uh, but if you're joining us for the first time or haven't been here in a while, we are in a series that we're entitling The Shaping Power of Gospel Hope where we're really just looking at how the gospel connects to different spheres of our lives. And so last week we considered gospel hope in marriage, and this week we're considering gospel hope in work. Now, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible has much to say about faith and work, much more than people actually realize. And uh, unfortunately, similar to, to last week, instead of uh, diving deep into it, we can only do an overview, uh, and we're just trying to get the basic sense of what the Bible's teaching. Now, if you're a student in here and you're thinking, well, I don't work, and so good, I can check out now, um, here's what I want you to do. Every time I hear work, just think school. Uh, now, that may make you really angry, but uh, as I say work, uh, your, your job, um, since you don't have work, is, is school. That is what God has called you to for the time being. You're called to be a student for God's glory. And so if you're older and you're working, here, work. If you're a student, then here, uh, studying or school. Uh, please stand with me as we look now to Genesis chapter 1 and we read God's word together. Genesis chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 26 to 28 and then jumping over to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and then chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In chapter 3, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And pain ye shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and ye shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. You know, I think uh, the reason that so... Many of us don't consider uh, what the Bible has to say about work is, frankly, we don't think the Bible has much to say about work. Uh, For so long, people have considered work in the realm of the secular. And so all work, except, of course, if you're doing something related to ministry, has been kind of relegated to a secular calling. But because we've divided secular and sacred, we've divided faith and work, the two haven't intersected much in Christian thought. And so my question for us this morning is, is that a good thing or is that a harmful thing? That distinction between faith and work, the secular, what we consider the secular and the sacred, is that good or is that harmful? Well, in order to answer that question, I wanted to read from Genesis, because I think Genesis helps us see that work is not as secular as we have made it out to be. In fact, when you open the very opening pages of the Bible, we see in Genesis, God is a working God. He's working in the garden. He's commanding his people to work in it as well. And so in this way, work is actually very spiritual. Work is a sacred act. It's a work that God himself does. Dorothy Sayers wrote an article entitled, Why Work? And in it, she raises this really interesting question. She simply says this, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his or her life? Why would anybody be interested in Christianity, in this religion, in the gospel, if it really has nothing to say about something that takes up such a large part of our lives? So what does the Christian faith mean for your work? It must mean something, and it does. And so what we want to do is, instead of giving this major issue, something that we spend a majority of our time doing, instead of giving it a minority of our attention, we want to give it our full attention. We're asking the question, what does our Sunday faith have anything to do with our Monday to Friday work? So here's the gospel truth. Here's the one-sentence summary, and today it comes at you very, very simply. Work is good and glorifying to God. Work is good and glorifying to God. And some of the students are plugging this away. School is good and glorifying to God. Studying is good and glorifying to God. All right, so as we look at this gospel truth, I want to think with you through this text, looking at three things. The design of work, the downfall of work, and the dignity of work. So let's get started with this first point, the design of work. Genesis 1 is the very beginning of the Bible, and it begins by recording the creation of the world. As many of you know, in six days, God created everything in the cosmos. Now, what kind of activity was God engaged in? God calls it work. 
What he was doing is working. And so in Genesis 2, after God finishes creating, it says in Genesis 2, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So the Bible opens up with the beginning of God's work week. Genesis 1 begins by recording for us God's Monday morning schedule. And what we see is amazing that from the very beginning of time, God established himself as a worker, that he revealed himself to be a diligent and determined worker. And this is important to know about God because when God creates Adam and Eve, when he creates man and woman in Genesis 1:26, he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. But do you realize what that means for you? That if God is a working God, to be created in his image and created in his likeness is to be made as a working person. That part of our responsibility and role as an image bearer is to do work like God in diligence and with determination. It means to be human, in fact, is to work. Because God in whose image you're made worked. I think Genesis is very clear on this. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of a cursed world. Work is not a punishment upon humanity. You know, when Adam and Eve were in paradise, when God's creation was good and perfect, Adam and Eve had full-time jobs. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I think of paradise, when I think about what the Garden of Eden is, look like, I imagine it to be sort of like this nice beach resort, far from responsibilities, far from life and work and stress and demands. Now, if I ask you to close your eyes and imagine paradise, how many of you are sitting there in your office or in a meeting with a client or your classroom? Most likely, none of you. When you think of paradise, how many of you are on a remote island far away from these things? Far away from emails and customers and deadlines and your boss? We envision a life of peace and serenity to be a life without work. But when Adam and Eve were in paradise, they were in the garden working. They were doing the work of Genesis 1.28. They were being fruitful. They were subduing the earth. They were exercising dominion over it by naming the animals and cultivating the land. And even more humbling and even more surprising is this. As they worked, they were reflecting God's image. As they worked, it was a spiritual act of worship that they were offering to him because as they worked, they were reflecting his creativity and his character back to himself. They were imitating their creator just as children imitate their parents. You have to understand that work was never a mistake or an oversight on God's behalf. He did not create the world, sit back, declare it was good, and then realize, oh, I forgot to make workers. Oh, how am I going to take care of the garden that I created? He didn't assign the work and the jobs to Adam and Eve as an afterthought. And this is important to understand because, you know, sometimes when I come home after a long day at the office, I come home, I kick my shoes off, I pop myself on the couch, I grab that can of Diet Coke, 
I crack it open, and life is so good at that moment until I realize, man, I forgot to do something on my to-do list. Have you ever had something like that? Or you sit back, you're ready to relax, and then you remember. And in that moment, the urgency of what you just remembered is battling your laziness, and you begin rationalizing. You start looking for other solutions. Maybe I can call somebody else to do that for me. I was going to make this for dinner. Maybe I can substitute it with this. I could just order it online. I don't have to go to the store. And we look for other ways out. But for God, he didn't finish his work of creation. Sit back, say it was good, and then go, oh, shoot. Who's going to take care of the garden? Who's going to name the animals? It wasn't like a TV sitcom where God goes, oh, shoot, what's going to happen? And just at that moment, the door opens and Adam and Eve come. God looks at the camera and he grins and says, I know just the people. That's not what happened at all. God intended from the very beginning for us to work. Which means Genesis is teaching us that embedded in your very nature, because you were made in the image of God, you were created to work. Because it was part of God's design, it is actually good for you to work. Work has an inherent goodness about it. Now, for some of you, this may be very hard to believe because when you think about work or you think about school, you're, you're already getting irritated and stressed out. Right? Just thinking about those kinds of things make you frustrated and annoyed. Others of you, you don't feel that at all. When you think about work, when you think about school, you, just, you already get bored. Your eyes roll over. You view work as this mundane, unsatisfying thing. When I talk about it, a feeling of dread comes over you as you think of Monday morning. But here's what you need to know. Work may be cursed, but work itself is not a curse. Did you hear that? Work may be cursed. It, work is cursed. But work is not a curse. Work is part of God's creation. It's one of the ways that we reflect God back to himself. It's his design. It's a good thing. Now, establishing that, having said that, we have to trace out implications of what that means. Because I think if we do, I think if we follow the thread that we're tugging all the way, it's actually going to correct us. It's going to challenge many of the, of the ways that we've come to think about our work. Let me start here. Being created in the image of God, we understand we're created to worship. So we were created to walk in fellowship with God. We were created to, to know him personally and intimately. And therefore, I don't think anyone in this room needs convincing that reading the Bible and singing praises and then praying to God is worship. I don't think any of us would argue with that. But if we're also created in the image of a God who works and places us in a paradise with the command to work, why do we fail to understand that our work is also worship to God? Work itself has an inherent importance and goodness in God's eyes. That Adam naming the animals was just as glorifying to God as his prayer life. That Eve cultivating the garden was just as glorifying to God as her singing. You see, as Christians, we have a shrunken view of work when we think it is only glorifying to God as long as we're doing something evangelistic with it, as long as we put a spiritual twist on it. But a biblical and Christian view of work means our work is valued by God in and of itself because it fits in his good design of the world and it reflects part of his image back to himself. 
So then how do you work in a way that glorifies God? You do it as he did it. You do it excellently. You do it to the best of your ability. You do it with thanksgiving and joy. You see, I really want to press this point home. Work that glorifies God does not have to be related to ministry. It doesn't have to be related to soul winning. It doesn't have to be related to witnessing for Christ. Work doesn't have to be leveraged as a means to another kind of end. Now, I'm going to say something that um, everybody needs to chew on. In fact, I'm actually going to say this. Please don't come up to me after service. Wait, I should continue. Please don't come up to me after service without having chewed on this or without having thought of it. Because as brilliant as you are, I think it's going to take a little bit of chewing. I say that because I'm just preparing you. may say something offensive. Just getting everyone ready. Because we view work as something secular, we think the only way it can be glorifying to God is if we inject it with something spiritual. This view refuses to believe that work itself is a spiritual act of worship because God designed it to be that way. Work is spiritual because when we work, we are imitating our Creator. So what we can't do is we can't develop an oversimplistic view of faith and work. I'm going to comment on this. What I mean by that is this. This is an oversimplistic view of faith and work. Like Glorifying God in your work does not happen as you listen to praise songs as you work. That's not what glorifying God in your work means. Glorifying God in your work does not happen as you put Bible verses on your cubicle or on your screensaver, or even as you read God's word publicly in the break room or the lunch room for everybody to see. Glorifying God in your work does not happen as you befriend your coworkers for potential witnessing opportunities. All those things are good and they do glorify God. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is that it's a superficial, surface-level connection between work and worship to reduce it simply to that. Because Genesis is telling us that you glorify God in your work as you do it faithfully, joyfully, and excellently, as you do it with determination and diligence. Here's why. As you do your work this way, you are recognizing the goodness of your work and you're radiating the image of a working God. And if you're not convinced by this, simply consider the opposite of the picture I just painted. If you work while listening to praise songs, but your work is full of mistakes that only burden other people because they have to clean up after you, then are you truly glorifying God in your work? If you work while reading the Bible publicly and you have verses displayed all over your desk, you have a tattooed on your arms, but your work is constantly coming in late and covered with the fingerprints of laziness, then are you truly glorifying God in your work? If you work while investing in relationships to share the gospel with other people, but you're taking up company time to do that, you're late to a meeting because of that. You're rushing to get your work done because you're going to soon miss the deadline because you were spending time doing that. Then are you truly glorifying God in your work? You see, gospel hope and work does not mean simply being a Christian in your workplace. It does mean that. But it means so much more than that. It means seeing your work through the lens of God's design for it. 
Work is good because God made it good. Work is glorifying to God because you reflect God's image when you work excellently, diligently, and joyfully. So do you understand that work is good? Do you understand how it's glorifying to God? So, so that's the first point, the design of work. Which leads, though, to the second point, the downfall of work. Now, I already said this, that work is not a curse, but it is cursed. And that's why our relationship with work, your relationship with work is twisted. Relationship with all kind of work, even work as a pastor, twisted, broken, deformed, maybe even more so, I don't know. I think because of this reason, because sin has entered the world and the curse of sin is upon work. So many people go to the work and it it causes such anxiety and fear. Uh, Sometimes work just leads to depression and discouragement. That's why work is hard. Work is hard. Work is difficult. Work is, we call it a grind. Work is drudgery. But here's the ironic thing with work. When we don't have work, we feel like a failure. We feel lost. We feel empty. When we have too much work, we feel enslaved. We feel burdened. We feel swamped. When work isn't challenging enough, we feel like it's a mundane. We get bored. We can't take it anymore. When work is too challenging, we feel overwhelmed. We're stressed out. We can't take it anymore. Our relationship with work is twisted and misshapen because it's cursed. Look at Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God responds with a judgment. It's a threefold judgment. He he judges, uh, curses the serpent, he curses Eve, and then he throws his curse on man. So here's what it says in the third curse in verse 17 of chapter 3. You shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all, your, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. It's cursed. Now let me point out this. The curse is agricultural because it's applied directly to Adam and Eve in the garden. But the principle, the heart behind the curse is this. All of humanity's work will be frustrating and fruitless. All of your work will be discouraging and it will be difficult. Basically, God is saying that the relationship we're supposed to have with work, the way God originally intended it to be good, will now be twisted. Its design will be bent out of shape. And I believe this is the reality that all of us experience in our work. That no matter how how much we put into work, no matter how hard we work, work will either neither satisfy us the way that we want it to, or we will never satisfy the work the way that it wants us to. Let me say that again. No matter how hard we work, no matter what we put into it, either the work itself will never satisfy us the way we want it to, or we can never, never satisfy the work's demands as the work wants us to. So let me slow down and just unpack each of those statements. First, you will never find a job that truly satisfies. And some of you are experiencing that right now. You have a job, but the only way that you're getting through your job is by reminding yourself every morning, just be thankful you have a job. That's the only way. You, you, you guilt yourself to it. You know when you were younger and someone said to you, or maybe you're a parent and you say, now, eat your food. I don't want to eat your food. Well, eat it. Think about all the starving kids in Africa, right? So now as an adult, I don't want to go to work. Well, you have to go to work. Think about all the jobless adults in Africa. And that's how you sort of psych yourself up to have to get ready for your work week. And that becomes your daily mantra. The 
only way you can persevere through the daily grind. Your work doesn't satisfy you. But second, if you found a job that you absolutely love, in the end you will realize you can never satisfy its demands. It's relentless. You will always be able to produce more, sell more, work more efficiently, do more around the house, visit one more client, make one more phone call, become a better teacher. You will become enslaved to your work. And that's why work is so hard and tiring and exhausting. It's simply in the line of the curse of Genesis 3. So God says in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's, friends, it's cursed. It's hard. It's laborious. It's frustrating. As a result of the curse on work, people adopt two approaches to their work. First, some people work to live. That may be you. Some people work to live. Work is nothing more than the way you make money. That's why you work. Working lets you pay the bills, support your family, put food on the table, and enjoy a couple of creature comforts. If you work to live, you end up thinking of work as just something to get done, something to endure, something to get through. Right? Monday to Friday is just a means to get to the weekend. Nine to five is just a means to get to the evenings. So you work to live. Second, some people live to work. You live to work. Your work is so much more than just work. It's something that gives you identity and imparts value. It justifies your existence, and that's why you live to work. But you end up being entirely insecure or anxious all the time because your self-worth, your significance, your purpose comes from the work that you do, and you become enslaved to that. You think this work is going to save me. It's going to give meaning to my life. It's going to make me a somebody. It's going to help me stand out. And so you live to work. So which one are you? Which perspective do you have? Do you work to live or do you live to work? Or put it another way, do you have too low a view of work or do you have too high a view of work? Do you have too low a view of work or too high a view of work? And here's why this is important. Both will lead to danger. What danger? First, when you view work too low, you will become idle in your work. Can we get the PowerPoint up to the right? It's, I think it's three behind. So another one, and then another one. Yeah, there we go. Well, I bring this out because because what's important is it's. I'm not saying idle, I-D-O-L. I'm saying I-D-L-E. When you view work too low, you will become idle in your work. Which means this, you will do the bare minimum to get by. You will do what you have to do to not get fired at nothing more. You're going to wait till the deadline creeps up on you to start, and then you'll quickly rush to get it done. You're idle in your work. Now, now idle, as according to one author, he says, being idle does not necessarily mean inactivity, a lack of productivity. It can be an inactivity of the heart an inability or unwillingness to see or embrace God's purposes and the work he's given you to do. And so when you're idle in your work, what results? Despondency, joylessness, complaining, discontentedness, laziness, passivity, people-pleasing, score-settling, corner-cutting, Monday-dreading gloom. These are the fruits of being idle in our work. 
And if you're idle in your work, it reveals itself, it shows itself both in the quality of the work you produce and the attitude you have in doing that work. Because if you're idle in your work, you'll just see work as a necessary evil. The real work that God is pleased with, the real work that I am called to do is the work of the church. It's spiritual things. It's worked on on the weekends. It's worked on in the evenings. And then your daytime job just is something you need to get through. It's, it's God's sanctification tool, really. And as a result, you're not proud of your work. You have no joy in your work. You dread your work. You have absolutely no desire to do better in your work. You have no vision for your work. And you don't try to apply the commands of loving God and loving neighbor to your work. Too low a view of work comes from the curse. You view work not as a gift from God, but as a punishment from him. So that's the first issue. The second is this. When you view work too high, you will make an idol of your work. Of your work too low, you will become idle in your work. Of your work too high, you will make an idol of your work. You will become enslaved to it because you're treating your work like a savior, like a, a master. And what will happen is that you will disobey the two greatest commands because you end up serving your work and instead of end up serving God and serving neighbor. And the way we know this to be true is if work has become your source of happiness or your source of satisfaction. That's how you know it's become an idol. Because you will worship your job. You will hope in all the things that it provides you. Listen, you will love the benefits you get from the work instead of loving how your work benefits others. So then what? You consider taking a job or applying somewhere else based on what you can get out of that instead of what opportunities it allows you to serve and help others. You know, work has become your idol when nothing else like it consumes your time, consumes your attention, consumes your passions. It's an idol when there's nothing more important that determines how happy and satisfied you are than how you're performing at your job, how you're being respected by your coworkers, the notoriety your position brings, the paycheck for your work that you bring home. Because when you make an idol out of work, you start evaluating your work, not in terms of what good it does for others, but in terms of what good it does for you. That's how you know your work has become an idol. Too high a view of work comes from the curse. You view your work not as a gift from God, but as your savior and your master. So let me wrap up this point. We were created to work. It's, it's a part of the way that we image God. That's why work is good. It's, it's his design. But because of sin, our relationship with work has been warped and skewed. And so sometimes the problem is that we are so unsatisfied with our jobs. And then other times the problem is that we are only satisfied with our jobs. Sometimes the problem is that we reduce work only to the wages we receive from it. Other times the problem is that we elevate work to the worth we think we receive from it. Do you see the dangers there are in the downfall of work because of sin? We will be idle in our work or we will make an idol out of work. So then what help, what hope and help does the gospel give us? And this leads to our third point, the dignity of work. The dignity of work. The dignity of work, listen, this is, this is the most important thing you're going to hear. 
except for all the other things that are equally important. But this one, pay attention to. The dignity of your work isn't found in what you do, but in who you work for. The dignity of your work is not found in what kind of work you're doing, but in who you work for. We need to have a robust understanding of this because work in this world comes in so many shapes and sizes. The type of, there's only really one kind of work, well, two kinds of work done in the garden. Farming. Well, farming, agriculture and animal husbandry. But in this world, there's so many different kinds of work, right? Some people work white-collar jobs and others blue-collar jobs. And some people work with their heads, some people work with their hands. Some people work outside in a yard, some people work inside an office building. Some people work behind a desk, others work to build a desk. Some people work for people, some people work over people. Some work results in external sweat, some kind of work results in internal stress. There's all these different kinds of work. But as you consider the various kinds of work, do you see them as all dignifying Work that has dignity assigned to them by God, not assigned to them by the world. Because the world shames people who do one kind of work and it celebrates others who do another kind of work. This kind of work is prestigious. This kind of work is the one that you should devote yourself to, not this kind of work. This is menial. This is pointless. Anyone can do this. And Christians, if you're not careful, you get caught up in this. Parents, you get caught up in this and wanting this for your children. We all get caught up in it. But the gospel redefines all of that for us. The gospel helps us recover the dignity of work, and here's how. The dignity of our work comes from the fact that God designed it to be good, and when we do it, we reflect his image. That God doesn't assign varying levels of dignity to different kinds of work. He says there's dignity in all kinds of work because it glorifies him. Now here's the problem. In our sin, we try to force work to give us dignity. We try to force out of the work we do to give us dignity. We're so consumed with the dignity that work bestows upon us. Some of you idolize your work because you believe it says something about yourself. You think that if you produce and you perform, if you have this promotion or this position, then your work will validate you. It'll give you an identity. And you think that you have status and meaning and purpose in this world because of what you do. And because you think it can dignify you, that's why you commit yourself to it. You throw yourself into it. You place so much hope into it. But then others of you, you're idle in your work because you don't believe that it can offer you any kind of dignity. So you think, what's the point? Some of you are ashamed of your work because it's looked down upon by the world. You think there's nothing to be proud of in what I do. You, you didn't want this job in the first place. You got stuck with the job because it was the only one available and then years have passed and there's really no other opportunity for you to switch. And therefore, you don't see how this work can dignify you. Therefore, you distance yourself from the work. You lose interest in it. You aren't fully committed to it. You think of it only as something to get done. And both approaches, both approaches, being idle in work and making idle of work, both approaches are wrong because they look to the work that you do to give you dignity. You're resting. You're relying on the work to give you something that it cannot give you. And you're failing to realize that your work has dignity simply because God created it and it's good and it glorifies him. But it's not so simple. It's not so simple to just say, oh, well, you're just telling me to think differently. 
Well, no, the gospel is giving you more than just a different paradigm to think through. It's giving you a power, a spiritual power, because it says this. It's only when you stop trusting in your own work to give you dignity and start trusting in another person's work for you that you will get true dignity from your work. The gospel tells you that it's not about your work, that Jesus Christ came and he labored in his life, death, and resurrection, and his work was for you. His work validates you. His work gives you identity. His work gives you significance and purpose. It's the only work that can. His work was to live a perfect life. His work was to die a perfect death. And he did this so that we would be forgiven, restored, and that the curse over us would be removed. And when I trust in that work, when I let that work speak a word over me, it gives me an identity as a beloved child of God. Your work doesn't define you. His does. Your work doesn't dignify you. His does. So you rest in him. You trust in his work. And then when you experience this freedom, this new profound identity in Christ, your relationship with work then changes. Because you no longer look to work to give you something. It's because you don't need dignity from work. You don't need identity from work. You have it all in Christ. So the gospel then gives you all of the power. I can give myself now to my work because I'm not trying to get anything out of it. Actually, in fact, here's what the gospel does. The gospel frees you so that you can do any kind of work. Because your concern now isn't in the work you do, but in who you do it for. This is why Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Friends, work is good and glorifying to God. Your work is good and glorifying to God when you realize it's not about what you're doing, but who you are doing it for. And this will shape and form your work, your view of work in an entirely new kind of way. So as I end, Christians, here's what you need to stop thinking. You need to stop thinking that you glorify God in your work when you go to work and you share the gospel with others. That you don't get drunk like the other people at the Christmas party. You're not sleeping around with coworkers like other people. You pray before you start your day. No, 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 no. A gospel-centered view of work is not merely bringing Christian ethics and Christian morals into the workplace. That's too simplistic. Gospel hope helps you understand the true nature of your work and how good work, work done diligently and excellently, glorifies God. Here's my hope as you start this week, whatever your work is. Here's my hope. Whatever your work is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, or you're commuting and traveling long distances, whether, whether you work at a register and you handle cash or you work in sales and you handle clients, whether you sit behind a desk and a computer or you work with tool and instrument in hand, whether you work outside under the sunlight or you work inside under a fluorescent light, here's my hope. That you start your work that you begin this very week proud of your work, fully convinced that it is good, and when I give myself to it, I glorify God.
Your work is not good because of how it makes you feel. Your work is not good because it guarantees you security. Your work is not good because it makes you feel fulfilled. Your work is not good because it's admired and respected by others. Your work is not good because it pays the bills. Your work is good because it was designed by God and it glorifies Him. If you believe this about work, what kind of new vision will you have for this upcoming week? What kind of prayer and attitude are you asking God to give you? What old expectations of your work are you leaving behind and what new ones are you putting on? Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, don't wake up under the dread of the Monday, but wake up under the delight of the one who worked himself to death for you. Because when you wake up and you work under the delight that he's given you, then your work for his glory will become a delight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, Genesis, which which shows and reveals to us your heart and the pattern by which you establish things. And thank you, God, for your work done on our behalf First, we praise you for the work of creation. How beautiful you have made this universe and all that is in it. Secondly, we praise you for your work of redemption. How you have restored to yourself broken things. How you have begun, Lord, to seek out and to find lost things. How you have begun to name nameless things. That's the kind of work you're involved in. And we are the recipient because you worked out our salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, as we now come to the table, bless us and meet us. Renew us by your grace. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, would you hear this new dismissal which has both a call and response? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Friends, go in peace.